You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This show was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations, and we pay our respect to their elders past and present, to the elders from other communities listening, and to all those working towards enhancing Aboriginal rights. We recognise that this is stolen land, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. Welcome to Stick Together. I'm your host this week, James Brennan. And on this week's show, we're hearing from the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus and two speakers who were part of the latest of those monthly events, uh, Emma Shortus and David Brophy. Now, the AUKUS agreement is a new military agreement between the US, UK and Australia, which would see an increase in foreign troops in Australia, manufacturing of nuclear-fueled submarines, and more US bases in Australia. It's an agreement that will impact on workers across quite a few industries, including manufacturing, as well as the potential for othering and racism as the country's foreign relations with other countries in the region comes back home. But before we get into that, we're going to hear some union news. The United Workers Union claims that the Country Road Group laid manure to stop Melbourne warehouse workers from protesting have been denied by the fashion retailer, who say they were undertaking routine gardening work. The United Workers Union said the retailer attempted to disrupt and disparage workers' spirits by laying fresh manure in the same spot that workers had planned to protest. However, a Country Road Group spokesperson said fertiliser was added to its garden beds as part of routine garden maintenance. Although many workers across the country are beginning to return to work, there are some predicting large amounts of workers will be leaving their jobs, citing post-pandemic stress. While some workplaces such as retail and hospitality have returned in New South Wales and Victoria, it has meant an increased burden for workers to maintain the public comply with COVID restrictions at their workplace. Some unions, such as Hospo Voice, have instigated training to assist workers to return to work. Film and television production in North America is in danger of coming to a standstill after the union for behind-the-scenes workers overwhelmingly voted to authorise a strike for the first time in its 128-year history. The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees said nearly 99% of registered members who participated, or 52,706 people, voted in support of a strike over the weekend. Restaurant worker Ling Zhao alleges she was underpaid $18,430 over two years by her former, former central Queensland employer who in turn is suing her for defamation. Miss Zhao says she only received four payslips over two years. BNW Asian manager Eric Yip says the business has complied with a Fair Work Ombudsman investigation. The Young Workers Hub says wage theft is common in the hospitality industry. And that's all in this week's Union News. Up next, we're going to hear a couple of interviews from the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus, presented by Liz Turner from Renegade Activists, with Emma Shortus and David Brophy.
So uh, the Raucous Antiochus Caucus is a monthly online event and uh, we're providing a platform for activists and campaigners from around the country to promote and discuss the actions in response to the AUKUS Military Pact. So this focus on action aims to get lots of people involved and to help build the existing peace and anti-nuclear movements and campaigning that's been going on for a really long time. But we also want to really inspire new and exciting actions to happen. So um, tonight we're going to be hearing from three fabulous speakers, Emma Shortis, David Brophy and Jacob Breck. And we're going to deepen our knowledge of the issues surrounding the AUKUS Pact but following that, we'll be calling up activists from across the country to report what's been going on and what's to come in relation to activism against AUKUS. And this has been a really important part of our proceedings tonight. This, this will be like kind of the, the real, the main thing, because things are really starting to fire up. Uh, we've already seen protests in WA, Fremantle at the docks, uh, protests at, um, in South Australia and Adelaide. Uh, there's one plan in Sydney, there's one plan in Melbourne. So now's the time that things are really firing up, which is really exciting. Um, so that part of the night is going to be pretty fast moving. And um, we will, Jordan, we'll try and make sure that we could get to you on time. I'll keep my eye on the time so that you get to um, get to have a little say, because that's exciting what you're doing there. Uh, but first up, I would like to introduce Emma Shortis, who will be our first speaker. So Emma Shortis is a historian and author of Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. She argues that we need to take a fresh and unflinching look at our so-called special relationship with the United States. You may have heard her or seen Emma on the ABC radio or television, such as The Drum Today and ABC podcast Russia, if you're listening and The Signal. And she's also a regular guest on Triple R Radio. Um, so, Emma, welcome to the Raucous Antiochus Caucus and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, in your book, you've researched the history and relevance of the ANZUS Alliance, that is the Australian-New Zealand-US Alliance. How does the AUKUS agreement change the alliance as it stands now? Um, well, Liz, I don't think it so much changes the alliance as kind of reinforces and broadens and deepens the historical trajectory of that alliance. So since the ANZUS, the Australian, New Zealand, United States Security Treaty was signed 70 years ago um, this year, it's been a big year for the alliance, there has been a kind of continued um, doubling down and, as I said, kind of broadening and deepening and a building of architecture around this security relationship with the United States where you, you see really a kind of historical pattern where you know, some development or some acquisition of defence material, you know, is considered taboo, it's considered off limits, you know, something like, for example, having American troops on, on Australian soil, stationed on American soil is understood as something just kind of politically untouchable until it isn't, until all of a sudden we have an Obama administration pivot to, to Asia and we have two and a half thousand American Marines on rotation through Northern Australia. And, and we're told through this narrative that that's quite different to having a permanent presence. But what you see is this kind of rhetorical building up and this kind of creeping logic of national security where those previously untouchable, unthinkable things become obvious. And I think in that way, AUKUS very much fits, fits into that narrative where, where you know, 
nuclear powered submarines was considered untouchable, something Australia would never have, something the United States would never share with Australia until it wasn't. And it, and it follows that pattern of Australians ourselves having absolutely no say or no consultation in that deepening or, or broadening of the relationship. So in that sense, I think AUKUS makes kind of historical sense when we look at the history of, of Australia's relationship with the United States, which is not at all, though, I think, to, to minimise the significance of the acquisition, of course, of nuclear submarines, where you can see that logic playing out again. You know, it's not a huge rhetorical leap from nuclear submarines to a nuclear power industry in Australia, which the Australian Minerals Council is, is already gunning for, to nuclear-powered submarines with, with nuclear weapons. And, and once again, you can I think you can completely see that happening without any consultation. And Emma... In your research on this special relationship that Australia has with the US, I say special relationship, <laughs> um, it sounds creepy when you do it like that, doesn't it? Um, what did you learn that you think is important for us as activists today? Yeah, sure. That's that's a really good question. And, and it really goes back, I think, to your acknowledgement at, at the beginning of this event. And that's that we can, you know, as scholars, as analysts, as activists, we can never underestimate the foundational racism of Australia's relationship with the United States. The, the common story goes, you know, that, that the ANZUS Treaty and this particular security alliance was born out of war and, and born out of the fact that the British Empire could no longer be relied upon to protect white Australia in the Pacific. And so Australian governments sought out quite logically an, another kind of white benevolent protector. And that's because from the foundation of this nation, white Australians, white Australian governments have looked out into our region with fear, you know, so deeply aware of the fact that we live on stolen land and afraid really that that land is going to be stolen off us by the non-white countries in our region. And that's the foundational logic of this alliance. And it's something that, you know, in my experience, speaking about our relationship with the United States, when we hear all this talk of shared values and shared democracy and shared history, that part of our shared history, which for both countries is foundational, is something that isn't confronted. And I think you are, you are so right to highlight the need for that to be front and centre of any confrontation that we have with, with the alliance and any attempt really to, to reform or rebuild Australia's role in the world. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and social justice issues on your local community radio station. And how do you envision Australian foreign policy without the ANZUS Alliance? What form do you think it would take? I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I've had... Um, a super interesting conversation, in fact, with, with Jordan about this very question and, and what, what Australia might do. And, you know, in, in the kind of um, analyst crowd, like the, the international relations crowd or what we could call like the um, foreign policy blob of Australian politics, there's this drive to have a kind of dot point of a dot, list of dot points of how Australia must um, conduct itself in the world or to have kind of immediate solutions to, to how Australia can change its role in the world. Like I, I wouldn't presume um, to be so arrogant to, to have the answers to Australia's role in the world and how we kind of fix the, the moral bankruptcy of this relationship. What I would say is that it has to involve, you know, it, we can't just ask as, as many people do for a little bit more independence for Australia when it comes to our relationship with the United States, you know, just asking for like a bit more wriggle room when it comes to our sovereignty or, or worrying about what submarines mean for our sovereignty isn't enough. There has to be a confrontation with that foundational question about 
Australia as a settler colony and how the analysis, the writing, the work, the activism that has already been done and has been done since, again, the foundation of this nation can inform that. It has to be a collective project. It can't be about individuals saying, oh, well, you know, Australia needs to pursue X, Y and Z when it comes to the relationship. And that's messy and difficult, but I think it's it's necessary and it's not naive to suggest that, you know, we can demand better from Australia's role in the world and from our relationship with the United States. And I think if we can't deal with our colonial past as a nation, it's really hard to envisage any other conversations going forward with any other states because our relationship between states is so, at the moment, is so deeply affected by racism and the history of Australian colonialism. Yeah, totally. And you see that in, you know, when when analysts kind of look at how, you know, how our Asian partners are, are viewing this relationship in this development with AUKUS and what do they think about it and how can we convince them that it's okay and it's not threatening and I think that is you know firstly incredibly patronizing but but also kind of again skates over the fact that Australia Australian governments have never dealt with our Asian neighbors in particular in good faith and that is because of that foundational racism and the fact that ANZUS is born out of a fear of the yellow peril and and we have to again we have to make that front and center if we ever want to change that. Absolutely. And Emma, do you have any advice or parting words for folks on the line tonight before we move on uh, to David? Look, I, I, I wouldn't kind of um, be, I'm not an expert in, in that activism, but I would, you know, advise watching so carefully how quickly that that nuclear question can snowball, which is not news to, to anybody here, but also to, to know and to point out what those politicians and advocates mean when they talk about the revival of the Anglosphere and when they engage in this kind of colonial nostalgia that, that you know, feeds across the Pacific and, and to Britain as well. Like, I think it's so important to, to call that out and be so wary of, of what that does and who it affects. Emma, thank you so much for your time this evening. Feel free. You feel more than welcome to stay on the line, be part of our discussions, but also appreciate that you might have things that you need to see to um, at home as well. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I'd like to call up our next speaker, David Brophy. Um, David Brophy is a historian of Ouija nationalism and the author of Ouija Nation and China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering. He's a senior lecturer on modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney. So, um, David, thanks very much for joining us tonight at the Raucous Antiochus Caucus. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. And um, so my first question for you is, um, how does AUKUS fit into the wider Australia-China political picture? <laughs> hmm. Well, I, I won't say it's a culmination, but I think AUKUS is a pretty notable landmark in a in an ongoing campaign, really, that's been aimed at pulling Australia out of a hedging position towards China and giving it more of a role in catalyzing a US-led containment policy uh, towards China. There's always been a fair bit of suspicion towards China in defense circles, um, but there's also been quite a high degree of Sinophilia uh, in the Australian elite as well. So I don't think what we're seeing is just a racist response to China. I think it has more to do with the perception that America's position in Asia uh, is slipping, and therefore Australia has to do more to um, to maintain it. Um, 
I have a quote from Richard Marles from when he was defense minister, shadow defense minister in 2018, which spells out this logic pretty well uh, in a speech. He said that Australia must, quote, demonstrate to the US that we can help share the burden of strategic thought in the Indo-Pacific so as to, quote, retain the American presence we need in the East Asian time zone. Um, so Malcolm Turnbull and the security agencies got the ball rolling on this in 2017 with a whole string of uh, exaggerated claims uh, of Chinese subversion uh, in Australia. That was directed to the Australian public, of course, but it was also directed internationally to send a message to the world that Australia was the front line uh, of this global pushback uh, against China. <laughs> and that was important because Australia's actions in and of themselves can't ever be determinative in this situation. Um, but by demonstrating Australia's relevance to US interests, it gives Australia a foot in the door to, be, to, to lobby Washington to be more aggressive towards China uh, and to increase uh, its military presence on Australian soil. Um, some of the criticism, I think, um, of this policy turn <coughs> misses this point. You know, people complain that Australia is behaving boorishly, that it's engaging in unnecessary public insults uh, towards China. That's all part of the strategy. Australia really wants to be seen uh, to be willing and able to, to get tough on, on China. So then after a, a couple of years of telling the world that China was a dangerous country, that business as usual with China could not continue, China then eventually responded with its trade actions uh, against Australia. That in turn has been seized on as evidence of China's hostility uh, towards Australia. And around we go um, in what I think is quite a dangerous political uh, dynamic. So AUKUS re represents a significant step forward in this strategy to, um, to stoke conflict with China so as to embed uh, an American military presence in Asia and in uh, Australia uh, as well. There's been quite a bit of commentary in the last week about uh, Morrison's ineptitude uh, in, landing, uh, in landing AUKUS, but I, I think we actually need to take a couple of different points um, from what's come to light. Um, Morrison bidding the US and, and screwing the French, what that shows is that Australia has had independent initiative in this situation. This is something that Australia has been angling for, not something imposed on us by the US. Um, and when people complain about Australian subservience to the US, they tend to, to miss that point. And secondly, I think what last week shows is that Morrison is willing to incur a political cost to land something like, like AUKUS. And that shows how serious uh, he is. I don't think people like Morrison and Dutton uh, particularly mind the punditry about Australia's trustworthiness on the international stage uh, and so on. Uh, they know that if any of this criticism ever gets to the point of calling AUKUS into, into question, they have a tried and tested strategy to, to combat that, which of course is to turn up the scaremongering uh, towards China. I'm not here tonight to argue that everyone who's anti-war in Australia has to have exactly the same view of international relations in the Asia-Pacific, or that we all have to agree uh, to a position on China and its domestic uh, and foreign policies. But I do want to say I don't think that we can confront Australian militarism today without at the same time taking on and diffusing uh, this, this talk of China uh, as, the, uh, as the enemy. Uh, some of these claims about China's intentions towards Australia are just fake news. Um, frankly, that can be uh, debunked. But some of it does reflect um, some pretty basic and widely held assumptions in Australian foreign policy. You know, for example, Australia's exclusive right to uh, dominate the Pacific. Those kinds of assumptions are, 
often shared by dovish voices uh, in the foreign policy debate as well. So even if AUKUS was to fall apart, um, in the absence of a more transformative vision of how we conduct international relations, which you know is what people like us have to provide, I think we can anticipate that this rivalry with China will continue uh, to motivate calls for things like um, increased military spending uh, in the years to come. And so I guess what you're talking about, David, is um, this the, the connection between the timing of the AUKUS announcement and the upsurge of xenophobia, which is the fear or dislike of China, which encompasses everything from political influence to Huawei to COVID. Sure, right. Well, when we talk about the domestic ramifications uh, of all this, I think there's, there's, there are two related dimensions that we need to be um, to be aware of. And, and I'll, I'll begin actually with civil liberties. So this talk of Chinese subversion, foreign interference, um, has become the chief motivation these days for the ongoing expansion of uh, security laws uh, in Australia. Now, if you've been following this, some of the implementation of this legislation has been pretty farcical, um, but the terms of these laws are defined extremely broadly. They contain severe jail sentences for things that, in my view, should not be uh, criminalised uh, at all. Now, I see these laws primarily aimed at intimidating and silencing constituencies in Australia that are supportive of engagement with China. But we need to be aware that these contain provisions that could easily be wielded against um, anti-war activists uh, as well. Uh, particularly, for example, you know, collaboration with foreign organizations, um, participating in an internationally coordinated uh, anti-war campaign, for example, particularly if there was direct action involved, uh, could is something that could be pinned as, as foreign interference. Um, ASIO is continuing to lobby for more laws uh, and to extend the provisions of counterterrorism legislation, things like detention and interrogation powers to cases of um, foreign interference. So this is something we should all be uh, worried about. The biggest impact, of course, has been felt by Chinese Australians uh, who've been deemed a, subject, a suspect community, a one that um, requires heightened surveillance, just as Muslims were in the uh, context of the war on terror. Uh, you have the same notion that um, uh, they lack some mythical set of uh, Australian values. Um, there is pressure to conform to uh, a stereotype of the good loyal uh, Chinese Australian and of course there have been calls to reduce immigration from the uh, the PRC um, including in a recent book by uh, by Peter Harcher um, one that astonishingly Penny Wong from the Labor Party uh, praised at, at its launch a book that openly calls for reducing uh, immigration from China um, the statistics on this are quite shocking there was a, a study conducted in 2020 by the Scanlon Foundation that found that Almost half of Australians, 47%, um, hold negative views towards Chinese Australians. Uh, and then there was a Lowy poll released in March, which found that in the preceding 12 months, 31% of Chinese Australians had suffered racial abuse and 18%, um, almost one in five, had been physically threatened or attacked on the basis of their ethnicity. Now, you'll often hear people, even very hawkish people, um, expressing regret. Uh, for all this and, you know, insisting that they're, they're not anti-Chinese, they're just um, anti-CCP. Well, fine. Um, it's not racist to criticise the Chinese government. I do that all the time. It's not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. But if you're advancing a narrative that China is hell-bent on taking away our freedoms or our democracy 
and that Chinese Australians are helping them to do that. If you believe that every policy sinew now has to be strained towards this confrontation with Beijing, well, I'm sorry, but anti-Chinese racism is what you're going to get. Um, and progressives in particular who imagine that there's, there's some kind of anti-racist way to support the US in its rivalry with China really need to be disabused of that notion uh, quickly. Now, you know, to, to, to conclude, I suppose this, this upsurge of racism, I think, ref reflects a deeper point here, um, which is that this campaign is not at all driven by humanitarian motivations. Uh, militarism and nationalism on our side are only going to produce uh, a mirror response in China. That's not going to help the Uyghurs or other victims of CCP repression. Uh, pointing bigger and bigger guns at China is not the way to solve disputes uh, in the South China Sea. It's not something that's in the interests of uh, the people of uh, Taiwan. And of course, this is always going to be the, the line of attack from the right, that we're soft on the CCP, that we're pro-China, uh, blah, blah, blah. So we need to be very confident in saying that, that opposition to AUKUS, uh, opposition to Australian racism, a critique of Australia's imperialistic attitude towards the Pacific, that's the only position from which to mount any kind of ethically credible uh, and consistent criticism of the racism and bullying diplomacy uh, that we see from China. You've been listening to Stick Together, and we just heard the voices of David Brophy and Emma Shortis, and they were speaking at the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus event. There are going to be in-person actions as part of the Anti-Orcus Caucus campaign over the weekend of December 10 to 12 across the country. Uh, so check out what's happening in your local area if you want to get involved, and the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus online events are happening on the first Thursday of every month. So that's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can contact the producers of the show to suggest a story or tell us about something that's happening uh, at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's James Brennan. Thanks a lot for listening. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.